2 Samuel 23, 1 through 39. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua Besheth, a Tachyamanite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines, until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him, only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah was chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Azahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod, Elika of Herod. Helez, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiazar of Anathoth, Mabunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahoahite, Mehiraah of Netophoah, Heleb, the son of Baana of Netophoah, 
Ittai, the son of Ribai, of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hiddai of the brooks of Gaash, Abialon, the Arabathite, Azmuaveth, Behurim, Elihaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jason, Jonathan, Shammah, the Herarite, Ahiam, the son of Sherar, the Herarite, Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbai, of Maacai, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, Hezro of Carmel, Peira, the Arabite, Egal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Nehiriah of Beruth, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zahuriah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you today for the riches of your grace. God, thank you that you have called us to be your people. Thank you that our identity is secure in our identity in Christ. Thank you, God, that we are deeply loved by you because we're in Christ by faith. Thank you that you've called us to be the people of God, that you've gathered us together as one body, the body of Christ. And God, we thank you that today we have the opportunity to continue to learn and to grow from your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be our teacher today. We pray that you would take these inspired words of sacred text and that you would speak into our hearts today. That you would instruct us, that you would guide us, and that you would minister to each and every one of us. God, we pray that we would as a result of being at church today, that we would be growing in our faith, that we would be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So God, would you bless us in our time in your word? Would you bless us through the remainder of this worship service and help us to glorify and honor you? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. Sandra, thank you so much for reading that. Uh, We send a Yeah, that was great. We can give her a round of applause. There's a team of scripture readers in this church, and Ryan will send an email out and be like, hey, does anybody want to jump on this text? Is this something you're interested in? And no surprise, there was radio silence when when he sent this chapter out with all of these difficult names. But Sandra, the woman of faith, stepped up today and, and tackled that for us. So thank you so much. Uh, Hey, church, we're finishing 2 Samuel next Sunday. So we've been journeying through the books of Samuel now for some time. And uh, God willing, we'll be done with this book at the end of next Sunday. And uh, in the beginning of September, we're going to launch a new series in the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, we're really looking forward to that, just camping out in the Gospel of Mark and really meditating on the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and allowing his life to form and shape our lives. So we'll have some new scripture journals available in the weeks to come, and we'll be diving into Mark in September. I want to begin this morning's sermon with a question for you. And the question is this. What would you choose as your last words? Like if you had that opportunity to really thoughtfully consider and intentionally curate your last words, what would you choose? 
What would you want to say? What would you want to endure for the people you leave behind? It's a tough question, right? The reason it's a tough question is because I think the way that we answer that question reveals a lot about what matters to us. It reveals a lot about our priorities. It reveals a lot about what we think is the most important thing. I bring this question up because, as you may have noticed, in verse 1 of our text today, we're told here that at chapter 23, we've come now to the last words of David. We've been together studying the life of this great man of faith, this king of Israel, for many, many months now. And here we are now, and we're reading what has been recorded as David's last words. Now, to be clear, these are not David's last words in the sense of his final breath last words. Like David's lying on his deathbed and he's moments away from passing into eternity and he just kind of whispers out these words. That's not what this is. This, I mean, this would be an incredibly dialed in and coherent speech for somebody that's about one breath away from death. So that's not what this is. But what this is, is this is David's final official communication to the nation and to his successors that are going to rule in Israel after him. You know, when our presidents leave the Oval Office for the last time, it's customary for them to write a letter to their successor. And they write a letter generally to try to encourage them and maybe to some extent shape the future vision of the nation a little bit, but they leave a letter to their successors. And you would imagine they put some thought into that. What do I want to say? What do I want to leave behind as I move on? And these last words of David that we're going to study here this morning are more like that. They're intentional, they're premeditated, and again, it's just his final communication to the nation of Israel and to his successors who will rule after him. Now, the chapter begins in these first seven verses with David's final words, which we'll spend the majority of our time on here this morning. But then he shifts gears, and so let me just give you a brief overview of the chapter. It's very brief. There's just two sections to it. Uh, The first part of this is a record of David's final words. That's verses 1 through 7. So his final words are recorded for us to learn from. But then there's a record of David's mighty men. That begins in verse 8 and continues through the end of the chapter. So that's the way the structure is laid out for us by the author of 2 Samuel. But let's take these in turn. We'll begin with a record of David's final words here in verses 1 through 7. And as I said, we're going to spend more of our time here in these first seven verses than we actually will in all of the other verses in this passage. But David's final words here that are recorded for us begin with an introduction. It's here in verse 1. Let's read verse 1 again and we'll consider it. It says, Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So he says that this is an oracle of David. And that word oracle there connects David with the ministry of the prophets. The prophets in the Bible would share oracles from the Lord. His assertion in verse 2 that the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me reemphasizes this idea that David is connected with the prophets of the Lord. Yes, David is the king of Israel. We know that. But David also functioned as a prophet of the Lord. Much of David's written communication and much of his speech 
is recorded for us in Holy Scripture. It has become literally the word of God. So David was a functioning prophet in his ministry. And interestingly, at times, David even functioned as a priest in his ministry. In that way, David foreshadows Jesus Christ who would occupy all three of these offices. Jesus Christ is God's king. Jesus Christ is God's prophet who speaks authoritatively on God's behalf. And of course, Jesus Christ is God's priest who would serve as a mediator between a holy God and sinful humanity. Now, David here, again, begins saying this is an oracle. But the note about him being the son of Jesse reminds us of David's humble beginnings. His dad, Jesse, was not a significant figure in the life of Israel, in the nation of Israel. He was a humble man. He was a shepherd. And David was born of that family. Very humble beginnings. Uh, His dad was of the tribe of Judah, which would qualify David to become king in Israel because the kings of Israel would come from that tribe. But other than that, his father was a, a, a relatively insignificant man in Israel. And so this speaks of David's humble beginnings. And because of those humble beginnings, David goes on to say that he is the man who was raised on high. Do you see that there in verse 1? Here was this, this young man that you'll remember came from a humble family. And he was a shepherd boy, which was a very lowly occupation in Israel. And he was really the runt of the litter. You'll remember when the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse's house to anoint the future king of Israel. His dad doesn't even bring David in from the field to get assessed. He just puts his other seven sons forward because he's sure one of those guys is going to be the next king and David's just completely neglected. He was very, very low. He was the runt of the litter in an insignificant family and yet that man was raised on high. He he becomes Israel's greatest king save Jesus Christ. He's also called the anointed of the God of Jacob. The Hebrew word anointed is the word Messiah. David is the Messiah, the the one that God anointed and chose. The Greek word would become Christ. He's the Christ of God, chosen by Israel's God. And finally, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. This reminds us that David was the darling of Israel. David composed many of Israel's worship songs. Their their hymn book, the, the book of Psalms, is, uh, is largely written by David. But David also had many songs sung about him. He was, he was renowned and the people loved David and they would sing songs about him. He was the darling of Israel. And we read all of this in the introduction so that we can be reminded of whose last words we're going to consider together. These are the final words of the very best that Israel has to offer. And in prophetic fashion, what David is going to communicate to us are the very words of God. He's going to share with us what God had shared with him. Notice that in verse 2. David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And now he's going to tell us what the rock of Israel has said to him. He says in the second half of verse 3, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So what did God tell David? 
that informs this final communication? Well, in short, here's what God was saying to David, and David is by extension saying to the nation. God was saying that a just ruler who fears the Lord is an immense blessing to all the people. A just ruler who fears the Lord is an immense blessing to all of the people. So David here is saying, hey guys, listen, I'm at the end of my life. I'm nearing the end of my reign. But the Lord wants me to remind you that your future blessing is going to come through having leaders who are just and who fear the Lord. That's got to be the qualities that they possess if we ever hope to experience blessing. Notice those are the two qualities in in verse 3. The ruler must be just. Meaning that his rule must be marked by righteousness, not by wickedness or lawlessness. He has to pursue what is right before the Lord. He has to treat everyone fairly. That's what justice demands. He cannot show partiality to some people over other people. He has to ensure that the innocent are never punished and the guilty are never let go. Every single person in the nation needs to get exactly what they deserve. He has to be a just ruler. To rule in any other way would actually make the ruler of these people a terror to them, not a blessing to them. We all long to be led in justice. Injustice goes against everything that we desire. It goes against how we're wired. So God's leader must be just, but notice he also must fear God. Only when a ruler positions themselves under God's authority... Are they fit to be an authority over others? This ruler has to be in the fear of God. Saying, my heart's desire is to honor the Lord, to obey the Lord, to serve the Lord, to follow his will. David says, listen, this kind of leader brings blessing to the people of God. He describes it in verse 4. He says, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloud this morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So this kind of a ruler dispels the darkness. This kind of a ruler is like the sun shining on a cloudless day. We get lots of those in Santa Barbara where everything is illuminated, everything is clear, everything is bright. And he says that kind of a ruler causes, is like the rain that falls and causes the grass to sprout up. That kind of a ruler brings life to the people that they rule over. So this is God's message to the nation and to David's successors. Israel's future is dependent on having rulers that are just and that fear the Lord. That's where the blessing will be found. But here's the thing about this, though. Is even the very best of Israel's leaders, David being probably the best, were only ever capable of fulfilling this partially. I mean, it is true that David, we read this in 2 Samuel 8, 15, that David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's a true statement. He was a just and an equitable ruler. But we know that that's only partially true. That David was not perfectly just and perfectly equitable. Uh, How do we know? Well, we could submit some evidence. We could roll the tape. What about Bathsheba and her husband Uriah? Was David, was he administering justice and equity to that family? When David was drawn to Bathsheba with lust and he took her and he committed adultery with her, even though she was married to Uriah? 
And then to try to cover his own sin, he has Uriah executed? Did that family experience justice? Of course not. Or roll the tape on Tamar and Amnon. David's daughter and son, Amnon, rapes Tamar. And David does not give Tamar justice. He just sits back paralyzed as a king and as a father and does nothing. And one of his other sons, Absalom, ends up vindicating her by murdering Amnon. So so while David was, relatively speaking, a just and an equitable leader, and while, relatively speaking, David lived his life fearing the Lord, he was not capable of doing that perfectly. And so, it is only in Jesus Christ that this ideal ruler finally appears. This one who would come and would rule with justice and rule in the fear of God and be like the the, the morning light that dispels darkness and the bright light that illuminates everything and the rain that brings everything to life. The prophet Jeremiah speaks this way of this future son of David, the Lord Jesus. He says this in Jeremiah chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness. And so here in David's final communication to the nation from the Lord, David is anticipating Israel's true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice that there's a bit of a pivot in verse 5. David has in verses 3 and 4, he's declared what God had given him for the people. But in verse 5, he's going to turn his attention now to his own rule, his own reign. And as he does, notice how he credits the success of his rule, not with his own faithfulness, but with God's, which as we know is a recurring theme in the life of David. Let's read verse 5 again. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Friends, while it is true that David fears God and that David seeks to rule justly, David recognizes that the ultimate source of the blessing that his rule has has produced is not his own faithfulness, but God's. It's, it's, It's God himself And the covenant, the everlasting covenant that he has made with David that has secured his blessing and upheld him and upheld his throne. He says that his house stands so only with God. David does see his house and his rule as a blessing to Israel. But again, he's saying it's only so because of God. God is the one who has made it so. And then he tells us exactly why. He says, for... He has made with me an everlasting covenant that's ordered in all things and secure. He's referring here to what we've, we've talked about before, the Davidic covenant, which is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where through the prophet Nathan, God promised King David that he was establishing his kingdom forever, that David would always have a descendant to sit on the throne. David's kingdom would be an everlasting 
kingdom. And David received that promise from the Lord. And notice now as he's nearing the end of his life, he's still full of confidence about his future. His future is secure because its success is not ultimately dependent on him. It's dependent on God and his promises. This is why he says what he says at the end of verse 5, which is kind of confusing in the, in the ESV, which is the translation we're reading. David says, For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? What's David saying here? Well, the word help here is a word that is translated also as salvation or deliverance in the Hebrew. And I think the New International Version captures the meaning well, so I'll read that for you. The New International Version points out that God is the one who, listen, brings to fruition my salvation and grants me my every desire. Because of God's covenant, David is confident that the Lord will bring about his salvation and will establish all of the work of his hands. Everything that God has put into his heart, God's going to bring to fruition. He's going to accomplish all of it, and he's going to ensure that David's salvation happens. I titled this morning's sermon, Finishing Well. Finishing Well. And David here is finishing well in his life. He's ending on a good note. He's confident of his future. He's confident of his salvation. He's confident that his life's work would ultimately be a blessing. And wouldn't it be amazing if at the end of your life, when you could tell, you know what, I'm really coming to the end now, everything is winding down, wouldn't it be amazing if you yourself could have this kind of confidence about your future? If you yourself could have this sort of hope about your future, that even even though you're coming to the end of your life, you're looking forward and saying, man, my house, it stands so because of God. And he will bring to fruition my salvation and my every desire. Well, you can. You can be at the end of your life and feel just like David feels here. Because even as God made a covenant with David, God has made a covenant with every single one of his children. The prophet Jeremiah speaks about this new covenant that God would usher in. He says this in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God promised in the Old Testament after the life of David, he's saying, look, there's a new covenant that I'm going to establish with my people. And the the law that that was recorded initially on stone is going to be written on their hearts. And every one of them will know me. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will forgive them of all of their iniquity and I will forgive them of all of their sin. This is the new covenant that I'm going to establish with them. And since their sin will be dealt with, all that they can expect to receive from me is going to be blessing. 
Doesn't that sound awesome? This is what God promises for his people. And how would he bring about this new covenant? He would bring it about through Jesus Christ. Listen to Luke 22.20. Jesus here is sitting in the upper room with the disciples. It's the night that he gets betrayed. And he's serving them communion, the Lord's Supper, for the very first time. And he's explaining what this meal means. And he says this in verse 20. He says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus then, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave, has initiated this brand new covenant from God so that all of us who trust in him can be the recipients of every single one of God's good promises. It's amazing. And we can literally appropriate the words of verse 5 for ourselves. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we can say, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause, or for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. So friends, we must be reminded today that you can reach the end of your life filled with confidence and hope about your future. Every much as bit as David did. That you can say, I know that he will bring my salvation to pass. In Christ, you can stand up to death itself, facing that and saying that you know that God will bring to fruition your deliverance. But we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the other side of the coin, because that's not so for those who do not know God. That's not so for those who reject Christ, as David's final words make clear. Notice how David ends this final communication to the people of God. He ends it in a bit of a warning as he now talks about the wicked. Look at verse 6. He says, But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. In contrast to David, whose life and rule are flourishing and are producing blessing for people, he says worthless men are like thorns to be thrown into the fire. Now, who is David talking about? I mean, who who are these worthless men that he's referencing here? That Hebrew word that's translated here, worthless men, is used numerous times in the books of Samuel. It's always negative. Uh, One of its first instances is back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it's used to describe Eli the priest, his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These two other priests who were under the high priest, and they were actually having sex with the women who were coming to the temple to make sacrifices to the Lord. And they were stealing parts of the offering. They were wicked men, and here's what 1 Samuel 2.12 says. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. This word is also used of Nabal. Nabal the fool in 1 Samuel chapter 25. This man who almost had his own life and that of his his entire household killed and destroyed by David because of his foolishness. Here's what we read in 1 Samuel 25, 17. 
Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This man was on the verge of bringing destruction to his entire family because of his own hard-headedness and foolishness. And so when David here speaks of, of, of the worthless man, the kind of person David has in mind is the kind of person who does not know God. The kind of person who just pursues their own sinful passions. The kind of person who actually brings chaos and destruction to those around them like Nabal. I mean, notice how David even says this. He says that they cannot be taken with the hand, right? When you reach out, you try to grab a thorn, you just can't take it in your hand. You don't grab a a bunch of thorns. He says it cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. If you're going to deal with thorns, you've got to have some tools in your hands. Otherwise, it will hurt you. And David says this worthless man is like that. They can't be touched without first arming yourself. They're a danger to you. They're destructive. And David warns, he says, this sort of person will be thrown away and utterly consumed with fire. Thus, here with David's final communication to the nation, he really does offer two paths for the way that we choose to live our lives. On the one hand, he offers the path of blessing. That comes from living your life submitted under the rule of God's anointed, which we know ultimately is Jesus Christ. This is the life that is ordered. This is the life that is secure. This is the life that leads to salvation and to flourishing and to blessing those around you. On the other hand, there is the path of cursing that comes from living in rebellion to God's anointed. Living an ultimately worthless life. A life that brings chaos and destruction. A life that makes you like a thorn to those around you. And that makes you liable to God's judgment. And so, friends, we all have to ask ourselves when we read a text like this, which path am I on? Which path am I on? Am I on the path of blessing? Have I submitted myself to the rule of God's anointed? Or am I on a path of destruction and cursing because I am rebelling against the God of all creation. And if you're on the wrong path, you need to know it's not too late to start on a new path. That God constantly in his grace reaches out to us. He says, hey, I'm inviting you onto this path. I want you to be on the path of blessing. You could come today. You could get on the path of blessing. Well, let's pivot the way the text does now. And let's consider this record of David's mighty men. We've heard now David's final words. But now let's notice this record of his mighty men. From an eternal perspective, the success of David's rule is all about God, as we've said. It's about God and his faithfulness and the covenant that he made with David. But from a temporal perspective, you could say that the success of David's rule and of his kingdom has a lot to do with the incredible people that he had on his team. And so it is right and it is fitting that as we get now to the end of the books of Samuel, that there is a record of these amazing people that helped secure David's reign and helped David rule so well in Israel. These people that we've read about here in 2 Samuel 23 are the key warriors in David's kingdom. And many of them had administrative positions in his government. The list begins with what are called the three. 
And then it deals with the 30. So there's kind of two groups of people that are being highlighted here. But they all are David's mighty men. So first it begins with the three. And it begins with the chief among the three. Look again at verse 8. And now's where I'm going to get myself in trouble with all these really hard names. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth. How was that? That was okay, I think. Atakamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. I mean, talk about a mighty man. One of David's mighty men. This man was the chief among the three. So this was probably David's champion of champions. If you get the showdown with the Philistines again and they send their Goliath into the valley, you probably send Josheb out there to fight him. This is the chief among the three. This guy was a war machine. I mean, the text literally tells us that he killed 800 men at one time. What was his weapon? Hand grenades and submachine guns? A spear. This is hand-to-hand combat, friends. This is like all of the movies that we've seen, and we know these fight scenes are fake, but it's one guy, and he just goes through person after person in their army, killing one, killing another, dodging this sword, stabbing this guy through. This is really happening with this guy. 800 people that he kills. This would have been hours and hours and hours of constant combat. I mean, the guy must have felt to the enemies and to his own people invincible. He cannot be killed. This is Achilles. You cannot kill this guy. He just destroys everybody. Notice similar to him is the second guy who's among the three, a man named Eleazar, also a really bad dude. Look at verse 9. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi, or Ahohi maybe. He was with... (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. Ryan and I have worked together so long. We have so many inside jokes and I can be out there when he's leading worship and make him laugh and he can do it to me when I'm preaching and you need to stop it right now. <laughs> Let me try to read this again where I was just at. Let's see. So they... He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. Here's his great feats. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword and the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So notice with this man who's also among the three that he has mighty feats attached to his name. The rest of the Israelite army fled, we read. They saw the enemy and they said, no way. Let's just flee, let's retreat, and let's live to fight another day. And Eleazar said, no way, we're not giving up any ground. And he charges out and he fights them single-handedly. The rest of the army does not come back until everybody's dead. So they can just go collect spoil. They get to the tree line, they see Eleazar out there, he's just slaughtering people left and right. And they're like, well, let's see how this works out. And finally, the whole Philistine army is dead on the ground and they go, this would be a great time to go out. 
He fought for so long. This was hours and hours of combat that it says that actually his hand clung to the sword. His his hand muscles had cramped up to where he probably needed to physically remove them from the sword because he had been fighting so hard and gripping so hard onto the sword. He just wouldn't give up. And he slaughters all of these, these, uh, these enemy troops and he is among David's mightiest champions. Finally, in the circle of three was a man named Shema. Look at verse 11. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But, just like Eleazar, he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Once again, the army of Israel flees, but one Israelite champion stands his ground. And through that one man, the Lord works a great victory. These three were elite warriors. They were the best of the best in Israel. And they were very, very instrumental in the successes that David had. Now, verses 13 through 17 tell us a really wild story. Uh, But it's a story that, that just helps to illustrate for us the loyalty and the bravery of these mighty men. It's a very heroic feat. We can't really tell from the text whether it's a story about the three that we've already talked about, these kind of, the the, the group of the three mightiest, or if it's another unnamed group of three men that belong to the group of 30 that we're going to talk about in a moment. We're not really sure, but the backdrop of the story is that David and his arch enemies, the Philistines, are at war. David and his men are hiding in a cave, and the Philistines have made their way all the way deep into Israelite territory. And David is, is, is a young general at this time, likely, and he is discouraged by the state of the nation, and he's discouraged that the Philistines have come so far into Israelite territory, and he longs for normalcy, and he longs for peace, and he longs for safety, and he just wishes that things were different, and that he could just have water from the well in his hometown. Like, could things just go back to normal? And he expresses this longing out loud in verse 15. And he says this. David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So he expresses it out loud. And his men hear it. And they take it literally. And they make it their mission to say, We love our our commander David so much that we're going to go, we're going to get him water from the well at Bethlehem. And they sneak out and they do this daring raid in the middle of the night, presumably, and they get behind enemy lines and they get the water and they bring it back. And then David does something that seems very confusing. Look at verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David And you would think that he'd be saying, thank you. You would think that he'd be gulping down this water, very excited. But it says this, he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, again, it's kind of confusing. Like, why is David responding that way? But you need to notice that David, he takes the cup And he feels cut to the heart over the fact that they've got this water for him. And he pours it out, it says, to the Lord. And he says, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. So he's actually not communicating with the guys like, oh, forget this. I don't want your water. 
He's, he's overwhelmed with what they've done and he's having a conversation with the Lord and he's saying, no way, far be it from me, Lord, that I would drink this water that was acquired at the cost of their very lives. I am not worthy of this kind of loyalty or this sort of costly sacrifice. Only you're worthy of that, Lord. So he actually pours it out as an offering, a drink offering before the Lord, communicating that God alone is worthy of such costly sacrifice. But we move now to the 30, and that covers the rest of this chapter. And there's two standouts among the 30. Look at verse 18. The first standout is Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, who is chief of the 30. So he's the captain of all these 30 men. He wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So David presumably presumably looked at him and said, you killed 300, that's good, but it wasn't 800, so you're kind of demoted. You can just be captain of my my 30. So, No, he evidently did not quite reach the prominence and the level of these three and whatever other feats that they had, but he was an amazing warrior in his own right. This is Joab's brother, and Joab, of course, was David's leading general, but this man also killed 300 enemies with a spear. We also know he was a giant killer who saved David's life. We saw this back in chapter 21. I won't read the reference, but there was a giant of the Philistines who was about to kill David and Abishai rushes out and he slaughters this giant and saves David's life. Pretty amazing. So David makes him the captain or the chief among the 30. There's one more guy, Benaiah, who gets some text here starting in verse 20. We'll read it. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and, and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Pretty awesome. Verse 22, these things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30. So the 30 all looked up to him and said, man, this guy is one of our great ones, but he did not attain to the three and David set him over his bodyguard. So this again was another incredible warrior in David's army. Aerials of Moab, that word aerials means warrior. So these were likely Moabite champions He didn't just destroy one champion from the Moabites. He had killed two of them. He also killed a mountain lion on a very memorable day when it snowed in Israel, which is very rare. But the author was like, remember the snowy day? That's when he did this. He also killed a handsome Egyptian. Isn't that weird? Like how handsome must this Egyptian have been if the Holy Spirit took the author of Samuel and was like, he's kind of writing like, and then he struck down the Egyptian and was like, hold on, no, no. Handsome Egyptian, that's right. Very handsome man. So this guy was, he was very, very, very handsome. Um, but that was not enough to overcome Benaiah. His good looks did not overcome him because Benaiah comes with a, just a staff and he uses his staff to take the spear out of this Egyptian's hand and then he kills him with his own spear. This was an amazing elite warrior. David makes him captain of his bodyguard. If you can kill lions and you can kill champions of the Moabites and you can kill handsome Egyptians, you can be the guy who protects me. Notice though, and we'll end here, that the the remainder of the 30, 
they just have their names recorded. There's, there's no recognition beyond that. There's no uh, explanation of their feats. There's no comment about their exploits. But their names are listed here, which is great. And we should ask ourselves the question as we wind down now, what can we take away from this record of David's mighty men? I think there's at least two takeaways. The first is this, and they're both related, but the first is this, that we're meant to see that things that are done in the service of the Lord's anointed will be remembered. They will not be forgotten. They will be recorded. These men served David faithfully over many, many decades They were valiant, they were loyal, they were brave, they were risk takers for David and his kingdom, and all of that is remembered. It is not forgotten, it's not lost in the sands of time. And this reminds us, friends, that for those of us who serve Jesus, God's ultimate anointed one, everything we do in service of the Lord is being recorded and will be remembered and will be rewarded. God sees it all. He makes mention of it, he notes all of it, He sees all of your labor, and guess what? Your labor is not in vain. In 1 Corinthians 3.8, we read that he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to what? According to his labor. You might be planting seeds of the gospel. You might be watering seeds. You're ministering to people. God is seeing all of it, and each one will be rewarded according to their labor. The second thing is notice that those who did the most for David are given the most recognition. Don't let that be lost on you. The the, the most airtime here is given to those who had actually done the most for David. And this is very, very important. It reminds us that heavenly rewards are not evenly distributed. And that should motivate us to say, I want to give everything to the Lord. I want to serve the Lord with all that I have. I mean, as a baseline for every single believer, your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life in heaven and you will hear on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And that's amazing and that's wonderful and that's exciting. But heavenly rewards are not evenly distributed. Jesus challenges us. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do it, he's saying. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In heaven, the way that we live for Jesus and serve Jesus here and now in this life can yield for us great reward in heaven. Here's 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Notice what he says now. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will what? He'll receive a reward. There is reward coming for the good work that you're doing for Christ. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So notice there's reward to the one. The other one is suffering loss. What kind of loss? Well, praise God, it's not, you don't make it to heaven. He says, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So so there is reward available for us in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is enticing us, and the scriptures are enticing us to say, don't be so fixated on the here and now that you miss out on that. Steward your life, leverage your life right now greedily. 
saying, when I, go, when I get to heaven, I want to stand before the Lord with as little regret as possible, just rejoicing because I have given the most that I was able to the service of the Lord. Our lives are like a vapor. Time is short. We need to steward them for Jesus. Okay, one final thing to take note of and we're done. Did you catch the last name on the list? Did you guys, I see some heads nodding. Did you see it? It's crazy. The last name among David's mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. We know Uriah. I already talked about Uriah. David took his wife and committed adultery with her. David had him executed. Evidently, that man, Uriah the Hittite, was one of David's very best soldiers. And yet, David was willing to sacrifice one of the greatest men he had in his kingdom to pursue his own flesh. When David saw Bathsheba bathing from his rooftop, he asked them to inquire about the woman. He couldn't recognize her from a distance. He said, who is she? And his men spoke up and they said, this is what they said. They said, is not this Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Translation, we know who that is. That's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. They knew who Uriah was. David knew who Uriah was. Uriah was renowned in Israel. He was one of David's guys. One of his friends, one of his inner circle here. And I don't want us to miss the warning here. Yes, David was a very spiritual man. David was a a person who was very strong in his faith. But the flesh is so strong that it can lead us to do heinous and foolish things if we begin indulging it. And in that sermon, we talked about the compromises David was already making, indulging his flesh, that led him to do this sort of a heinous thing. How could David sacrifice somebody so loyal, somebody so valuable to him, to pursue his own flesh? Friends, that's how strong the flesh can be. How many people have sacrificed their wives and their children for an adulterous relationship just like David? How many people have sacrificed their spouse and their children for drugs or for alcohol or for gambling or for any other thing that gratifies the flesh? How many more have sacrificed family, the people that are most important to you and closest to you, sacrificed them on the altar of greed and pursuing career and power and things like that? I mean, the the death toll here is massive. And so the warning here again is the flesh is extremely powerful if we're willing to indulge it. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we're given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is stronger than the flesh that seeks to destroy us. All of us have episodes in our lives like David's sinful failures with Bathsheba and Uriah. But in Christ, as we bring this whole chapter to a close, those just become a painful chapter rather than the whole story of your life. Even in our sin, we do have a future and a hope. And that is only because of God's commitment to us and his faithfulness to us. And so no matter what you've done in your life, when you get to the end of your life, you can be like David here, full of confidence and full of hope about your future. You too can finish well. And it's all because of Christ and what he's done for us. And we're going to spend the final moments of our service today 
meditating on and celebrating all that Christ has done for us. Today is Communion Sunday. Earlier I mentioned to you from Luke twenty-two twenty that Jesus explained when he served communion the first time to his followers that it is through what communion points to the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, that the new covenant is initiated between God and his people. Today we're going to spend time receiving these elements, the bread and the cup, which point to the body and the blood of Jesus, remembering that it was through the death of Jesus that that new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied actually becomes a reality. It is through the death of Jesus that we become the people of God, that we know him, that his law is written on our hearts, and that all of our iniquity and all of our sin is forgiven. And so today, we as a Christian church and as Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The way we serve the Lord's Supper here at Apostles is the band will be up here in just a moment. Uh, They'll begin playing some music for us. And Jonas, one of our deacons and myself, will be down here in the front. And we'll be holding the elements. And when you're ready, we want you to get out of your seat, get into the center aisle, come forward, grab the elements, and then just make your way back to your seat, hold on to them and worship, and then we'll pray together and we'll receive these elements as one body of Christ together. So that's how we'll serve communion. And if you're visiting Apostles Church today, uh, we want you to know that you're welcome to serve, or to not serve, but you're welcome to receive communion with us today, so long as you yourself are a Christian meaning that you've put your trust and your faith in Jesus because this is a family meal. So if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and he's your Lord and Savior, and if you've been baptized in obedience to the commands of Christ, and if you're in good standing with your own home church that you belong to, then please, by all means, receive the Lord's Supper with our church family here today. Let me pray for us and then we'll receive the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you that your promises are sure and steadfast and true. And God, we know that you promise that those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, you promise that our sins were truly dealt with on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago, where Jesus took our place and he bore the penalty for our sins. And not only that, but you promise that you'll be with us through the rest of our lives. You promise that your spirit will guide us and fill us. And you promise us that even death itself will not have victory over us. That just as you rose, Jesus, we also will rise. And so today, we worship you, we honor you. In Christ's name, amen.